Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, welcome to uh, a sunny day and uh, February 17th, as it turns out. Uh, it's a cold one. All right, stop talking about the weather. Ah, uh, yike. I'm not sure where to start here. That's the way I always start. <laughs> God. But my heart just goes out to the people I know who are suffering in in Texas and in other places where the weather is brutally cold, colder even than it is here right now, with no heat. Uh, I can't, I, I mean, I've experienced that once, but no more, it was no more than probably 12 hours, and it was awful. And at night, it's cold and it's dark. So my heart goes out to them. And as usual, uh, people of color and people who don't have much uh, will be suffering the most and dying. Um, I'm sure whatever death toll uh, will be attributed to this weather event uh, will continue to uh, to grow. It's a huge, uh, huge human uh, story, but it is mostly a story of governmental malfeasance again. You know, this. I was thinking about Ronald Reagan and how he so genially and seemingly benignly uh, told us and schooled Americans on the fact that government was not the answer. And in fact, the government was invariably the problem. And with Reaganism triumphant in its time, uh, it helped to steer, obviously, the Republican Party to the place it is now, which is a belief that government is something that is dangerous, that is not meant for any constructive purpose. I don't quite understand uh, this insanity of refusing to see how government is the only way to tackle a lot of problems from a pandemic to infrastructure. And this is an infrastructure issue. This has to do with how we in this country get our 
power, the grid. And I didn't know that Texas, unlike almost every other state in the union, if not all the other states in the union, uh, refused to be part of some kind of, you know, federally uh, constructed power grid system. Now, because this is the United States, our power is atomized, it is balkanized, it is state by state and region by region, but apparently there was something that once was suggested by the federal government and states would join in. If somebody knows something more about this, please feel free to help me out. Um, I guess it was in the the mid-90s that Texas decided in its kind of braggadocio, tiny, tiny government uh, way to uh, not be part of this federal system and, in fact, to hardly regulate its power producers at all. While every other state demands that a power producer hold reserves. As a matter of fact, the common practice is that any power producer must have a supply buffer, at least 15% beyond a typical day's need, because obviously that's only, you don't have to know anything about power to know that, well, of course you want a reserve for events that are unusual, like what we're seeing now. But Texas, of course, believing that government should stay out of the way, didn't require that buffer. And people now are suffering and they're dying One energy specialist said about Texas, what they have done should be called systematic unpreparedness because this was not inadvertent. They planned (laughs) this horrific outcome. I, I, the more I'm reading about this, the more, the more astonished I am that so many people in this country live in states controlled by Republicans where they are essentially left on their own. It's law of the, the jungle. And if you think it's not, I don't know if you're aware of this uh, one West Texas mayor who, given the suffering in his uh, 
in his town. Put this out. He's the mayor of Colorado City. Did you see this? It's hard to believe. Uh, by the way, I believe he has since resigned uh, his his post. And um, I think uh, is running ahead of the uh, of his citizenry who are probably coming for him. So here are a bunch of people. They have no power. They have uh, they don't have water. Their pipes are frozen. They have nothing. And here's what the mayor said to them. No one owes you or your family anything, nor is it the local government's responsibility to support you during trying times. Sink or swim, it's your choice. I mean, there it is. There's republicanism. It's just so rare that somebody just flat out says it so baldly. He ain't done. The city and county, along with power providers or any other service, owes you nothing, all caps. I'm sick and tired of people looking for a damn handout. What? We're talking about a basic which these people pay. A necessity so important, a utility, that it needs governmental regulation to ensure it. It is part of basic infrastructure that allows people to live with a measure of dignity or even just to live at all. It's no handout. And he goes on, if you don't have electricity, you step up <laughs> and come up with a game plan to keep your family warm and safe. What the hell? If you have no water, you deal without and think outside the box. If you are sitting at home in the cold because you have no power and are sitting there waiting for someone to come rescue you because you're lazy, that's a direct result of your raising. Only the strong will survive and the weak will perish. God has given us the tools to support ourselves. This is sadly a product of a socialist government where they feed people to believe that the few will work and others will become dependent for handouts. I, we have lost sight of those in need. What? And those that take advantage of the system 
and mesh them into one group. Bottom line, quit crying. Quit looking for a handout. Get off your ass and take care of your own family. Don't be part of the problem. Be part of the solution. And there's that echo of Reagan. Government is not the solution. Government is the problem. There. And there it is. There's republicanism for you. This is American, rugged, individualism. Uh, this is American, anti-socialism run amok. And this is a peculiar kind of American cruelty. A blaming of those in need. I, I, uh, I mean, that these, he's not like a, uh, an aberration. He just lacks the um, ability to cloak his feelings, his beliefs um, in, you know, more proper an obfuscatory, did I say that right, uh, language. No, there it is. So this exact political mentality has made Texas now a state whose government has clearly totally failed them. Now, I am imagining this uh, go it alone, let's secede Texas is now begging the, us, the federal government, the taxpayers, to help them. And I'm sure the feds will come in and help. But they will never acknowledge that in their moment of need they all of a sudden decided that government is the solution. And since they have dismantled their own government, they turn to the federal government, which the last Republican administration tried to disable and did a hell of a job. And it's not up to snuff now. It's not running as it should. But Am I the only one who thought the same thing? Wait a minute. One of the reasons that more Americans are dying during this pandemic and we're not able to get vaccines to people is because, and I watched some of the town hall with uh, President Biden on CNN last night, and uh, to a question from somebody saying, hey, I have a child who is, you know, is incredibly at risk, and I can't find any way to get him a vaccine. 
And Biden was forced to tell her, well, you know, it depends on what state you're in. Now, that woman was in Wisconsin, obviously. But so every state has decided on its own how it's handling all of this. Any other industrialized nation, which obviously has some form of national health insurance that the government oversees, does not have this problem because they have a federal system that is so much better than this balkanized, atomized, 50 different systems that we have. So your chances of getting a vaccine or your chances of living or dying during weather events and or pandemics really in some ways depends on where you live and whether or not you have a functioning government. This is nuts. And something as basic as electricity. The power grid, we have balkanized that as well and handed it over to capitalists. <laughs> to, yeah. Sure, because capitalists always do it better. They do it more efficiently. They don't care about their customers. They care about their shareholders. And if we had a national grid run not for profit, but for us, you don't think things might be a little better? This is more American exceptionalism. And it ain't pretty. Ed, thank you. He says Texas has an independent power grid because of its response to the 1935 Federal Power Act. Sure, sure, okay, this is real shocking, huh? So we got a Democrat in the White House, FDR, and he's trying to, yeah, save uh, this nation at the time. And he comes up with, yeah, a Federal Power Act, and which would give the federal government authority to regulate power companies. And of course, Texas would say, what? <coughs> well, fine. I mean, I, I feel nothing but scorn for these uh, politicians in Texas and these other states that are now, you know, desperate, pointing fingers, blaming anybody. 
but themselves. But my heart, my heart just goes out to the people who happen to live there. Now, if the people who are suffering (coughs) voted for, like this mayor, who was so empathetic in his response to his uh, constituents, if they voted for it, I can only hope, although I will not, I will not be delusional, I would only hope that they would see that they're using their vote incorrectly, that they're electing the wrong people, that they're seeing, seeing what happens, feeling what happens. When you put people in charge of government who don't believe in government. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm screaming. Am I? Oh, God. All right. You know, I haven't been watching TV news for uh, the last few days, so I'm assuming this is a the big story. Um, and I, I might be behind the curve here. Um, and this is one of those television stories uh, that I don't like to watch because it involves so much um, human suffering and political malfeasance and corporate greed. All the things that make me a little crazy, right? Well, um, it was a wonderful metaphor. I should only hope it would become more reality is Uh, Did you see uh, Trump's Atlantic City Casino get blown to smithereens this morning? Yeah. I mean, it was been dead for years, but they finally just blew the whole damn thing up, dynamited it. And, of course, the lawsuits have begun. You know, he's going to be, I don't I don't know, I don't care. I don't want to think about him. And now he's clearly starting to emerge because he sees now that he owns the Republican Party, even in exile. It's, it's going to be awful. I have to tell you something on a personal level. I... I've had a man in my head for the last few weeks. Keep thinking about him. It's a man that I met um, and was just blown away by. And I mean, this is on a professional basis, not a personal basis. Excuse me for not making that clear. Um, 
And even though I met him, geez, uh, maybe almost 20 years ago, I'm not quite clear, I have never forgotten him. I spent all of maybe altogether two hours with him. And he had that big of an impact on me. I He had written a small book, a little book, and that's why he was on the show. And he was here in person. And that book has been something I cherish. The book in many ways changed uh, my, if not my life, my sense of what a good doctor is and what medicine should be. And because I was so taken by this guy, I don't know why he has stayed in my heart and my head. And lately I've been thinking about him a lot. I'd say about two months ago, maybe two months ago, I thought I haven't seen an obituary but maybe I missed it. He'd have to be very old. And I Googled him. And no, he was alive. He was alive and still doing his work. He was 99 and still at it. And I thought, of course, <laughs> of course, this amazing man. And then I went looking for his book. I thought, I'm going to read that again. And he had written something so wonderful to me in it. And I couldn't find the book. And I freaked and then remembered, oh, my God. I gave it to someone who was struggling with a frightening medical issue and was immersed in the horrors of American medicine. And I said, read this book. It'll, I think it'll help you. Just read this little tiny book, read it. And I said, and, and please, I, I will want it badly. I know, because I, I never gave it to anybody. But so like so often happens, yeah. She better have that book. And I was thinking about him yesterday. Because I was talking to somebody else about uh, telemedicine, how they'd seen their doctor. on, And I thought of something that he had said to me. And I said, you know, in some ways, I think telemedicine might be better <laughs> than, than the way normal medicine works in these days. Because in telemedicine, you actually have a doctor looking at you. Sitting and looking at you, talking to you, as opposed to uh, this nurse, this intern, all staring at computers and putting, plugging things in. You know what I mean? Because his whole thing was just that. If a doctor doesn't talk to you, get to know you. Have a sense of you as an 
singular human being, that doctor cannot do their work. His book was called The Lost Art of Healing. And it is a condemnation of our kind of medicine, doctoring. Having been thinking about him so much, you will understand that when I page through my New York Times today and turn to page 10 and saw him, I let out a shriek. Bernard Laun, the headline says, inventive heart doctor and anti-war activist dies at 99. It, oh my God, it just amazes me that somebody, a human being, can have such force of personality and intellect and energy who can, in that long span, do so much. He is probably responsible for saving hundreds of millions of lives. Can you imagine? He saved my father's life. My father never met him. He might have saved many people in your family. You never met him. He invented the heart defibrillator. Before he invented it, there had been many efforts, many failed efforts. Attempts, and then he figured it out. This is 1970 something. And because, and I'm getting this from the obit, and because of his invention, which immediately was all over the world. It allowed open heart surgery. It made it possible. It ushered in all kinds of new resuscitation techniques and technological development, including modern pacemakers, which kept my father alive for the last 40 years of his life. It gave him and gave me 40 more years of him. And he was indefatigable. He founded 
so many organizations I can't even begin. And these are the one he founded got him a Nobel Peace Prize. I have met two Nobel Peace Prize recipients in my life. Elie Wiesel and Bernard Laun. And he was given the Nobel along with a Russian scientist, doctor. And it wasn't for the defibrillator. It was for his work and his founding of an organization called International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. So he was this amazing political activist, as well as an inventor, as well as one of the most charming, bright, delightful human beings you'd ever want to meet. He was born a Lithuanian Jew, as are my progenitors, and he was lucky because his family did what a lot of Lithuanian Jews were always trying to do, which is get the hell out of here. Mine left before his, but they got out in time in 1935. And he would have been 14 years old. So at 14, he came to the United States. He was the founding president of Physicians for Social Responsibility in 1961. That was the same year he was working on the defibrillator, and that came in in 1962. And because he was a practicing doctor, he was always concerned about how he saw medicine going, getting less humanistic all the time. Hey, I hope you're still there. I guess my landline is the problem, huh? I don't know where we were. I know I'm going crazy. I, I, I take this man's death so, so to heart. I don't think I've met a more amazing human being. I, I, he did so much. So he finds out that laughing gas can relieve the horrible pain that some people have when they're having a heart attack. He was always finding stuff that, like, right there. Okay, that'd work. 
instead of, he was so, he had the most incredibly open mind. Listen to what he did in um, 1991, okay? He founded a, a nonprofit, and that nonprofit launched a satellite, a communication satellite to provide online medical training to thousands of doctors and healthcare workers in Africa. He founded another organization called Procore, which was a, a global network focusing on cardiovascular crises in developing nations where up-to-date medical information can be scarce. It allowed these doctors and healthcare workers in, in underdeveloped nations to have access to it. And then in 96, he wrote the book that I cherish, The Lost Art of Healing. So that must be when I met him. Wow. I don't remember him telling me about a lot of this. He was focused on me. And do you know that after the interview, he said to me, he said, you have some thyroid issues, don't you? And I said, what? He said, do you? And I said, well, uh, yeah, half my thyroid was removed. Uh, Tumor. And he said, yeah, I could tell. I said, what do you mean you could tell? By sitting across the table and I'm having an interview with him. I'm interviewing. And you know, I forgot what he said, but it was something about my eyes. Well, your eyes, this, that, and the other thing. And this brilliant doctor knew something was wrong with my thyroid by looking at me. The lost art of healing. Wow. Oh, I'm sorry about the um, whatever that was, but that was me using my crappy old landline. Um, Allison writes, the Republicans want less and less government. Yet, they sure want the jobs in government. <laughs> they don't want to do anything positive. They don't want anything to help anybody. They just want to collect those taxpayer dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, I'm so sick of getting these. Uh, I mean, it's nice that they put them out, but because I'm in media, I get these. Uh, you know, our government working. Uh, so this is from the Public Works Department, and it comes in uh, here. But I've been getting these, it seems like, every other day, because the headline is always the same. Public Works Winter Storm Preparation. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, no, not again. Yeah. Well, so there's, there's, we got another few inches, I guess, coming in. Uh, 
two to three, he thinks. Yeah, he's just telling us, oh, salt truck. You know, here's what he should say. You know, the salt trucks will be in operation. Uh, we will have to maneuver the salt trucks around all the television uh, reporters <clears throat> standing outside uh, our salt trucks. Uh, I think that is so funny how TV, I mean, you could, you could actually, you don't have to watch television news like during or before a storm because they just like, like automatons send off their reporters to do the same damn story over and over again. We could all do it for them. Really, they should, they should, God, it drives me crazy, drives me crazy. Uh, hey, another, something meteorological that I saw a video of uh, on Twitter, and I, I think I've seen this thing before, but I didn't, I don't know what causes it. It was the most amazing picture of, I think, an Irish uh, village on the sea coast built right up on the sea coast and the man the water was like oh the waves were crashing in but the waves were um were made up of these like it looked like somebody had thrown a whole bunch of detergent um in the water so and the 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 caption said something about Irish village inundated by sea foam. And it, it was like, you know, really, I mean, these big balls of what looked like yeah, big balls of uh, detergent um, all over, all over the streets, stuck on houses, on the sides of doors. What is that? I guess I could look it up. But what is that? <laughs> sea foam. I'll tell you, nature's got some just amazing stuff, doesn't it? And we're always uh, – uh, okay, never mind. Um, I'm sorry. I was trying to read an email while talking, which is very difficult. Uh, okay, what else do we have? Uh, I, um, I so love this story. One of the things that we hear about, uh, COVID is that <clears throat> some people who get it, who survive it, uh, never quite shake it so that they have this, you know, prolonged problem. They're calling it long COVID. And doctors haven't really known what the hell to do for these people. I mean, they often have continuing trouble breathing. That's one of the main the main complaints, as well as when you can't get enough oxygen, that is totally enervating. So they're exhausted. Uh, 
even though they're technically over the infection, they are in real trouble. And there's this amazing story. Bernard Lowne would love this story because it shows a doctor willing to be open to something outside the box and help coming from an unusual source. So I take you to the UK and I take you to the English National Opera. Now, the English National Opera, like any opera company during the pandemic, has been brought to its knees. I mean, you can't have, no one's coming to a theater and no one definitely is coming to a theater where uh, people with the ability to project their voices are doing that right toward them. So one of the opera singers kept reading about these people who have recovered, but they have breathlessness and fatigue and all that stuff. And this woman, her name is Jenny Malika, she said, you know, and I thought one thing us opera folks know is breath. That's our expertise. And maybe some of the things we know could help these people. So she actually approached a doctor, a respiratory specialist at one of the local hospitals, at one of the country's biggest public hospital networks. And that doctor, another woman, was very interested. She says, you know, we've been racking our brains about how to treat these people and we're coming up with nothing. Because breathlessness, I mean, that can be so difficult to get at. And we've gone through all the possibilities with drug treatments. And so we feel like we just don't have anything left to give. And that acknowledgement of their failure allowed them to say to the opera singer, what do you think you could do? And so what happened is they formed a group called English National Opera Breathe, and they held Zoom classes for people suffering from this long COVID. And they taught them things that opera singers know about posture, about breath control, and they introduced them to exercises involving humming and singing and short bursts of, of, uh, of air, uh, you know, bringing it in and pushing it out. And do you know what? Well, I'll give you one of the guys who was suffering. He says, wow. 
This has really, really helped. Physically, mentally, and in terms of anxiety. And that was exactly the aim. It was to teach people how to get the most out of whatever lung capacity they had, because many of them have damaged lungs now. And as I learned from reading that wonderful book, Breath, we don't use our lungs properly. We don't know how to breathe. We think we do, but we don't. And we have so much more to be gotten from the lungs we have. But you find out, too, that when you learn how to breathe, it calms you. It's why breath is central to meditation. It calms you. And since people dealing with this long COVID are not only suffering physically, they're suffering from anxiety. And so it worked. And because of the national health care system, the program is being expanded throughout the UK to help people suffering from these post-COVID conditions. And that same guy who said, my God, it has helped me, he said, I had a snowball fight with my daughter the other day, that is a level of exertion that would have been unthinkable. He says the dark feelings have disappeared. He said, this has taught me how to breathe. I always took breathing for granted. It's a blessing. So there you have it, opera singers, using the skills they have, redirecting the talent they have, the energy they have, and finding that they can actually help people. And this opera company in general, uh, it seems, has a incredibly uh, humanistic uh, core because when the um, pandemic started and they had to essentially close down, they right away redirected a lot of their energy. They actually thought of things they could do. So their wardrobe department immediately started making protective equipment for hospitals when they there was a shortage initially. And then they came up with this way to help people who were actually suffering. I love that story. And as I said, it's right up. Bernard Lown, may his memory be a blessing. Right up his alley.
So I started today talking about people in Texas in positions of authority and governance, incapable, obviously, supposed to be about and clearly failing to be creative, to think in terms of coming to their people's aid, setting up a system in which they could do what government is is for. And there's an awful lot of that going around because the Republicans have propagandized generations of Americans, generations of Americans. And I don't see how we're ever going to deprogram all of these souls who don't understand what a government properly run can do. The Republicans' demonization of government, you would have to call it a huge, huge success story. And we, the people, have paid for it. Those suffering people now in much of America who are shivering in the cold, who have no water, no heat, no light, who are in danger of freezing to death. Hmm. Do you see they keep coming? This is a totally off subject. The, um, the TSA at the airport, I still can't believe people are flying. <laughs> the TSA at the airport, I guess people are flying. Um, have been confiscating loaded guns at an alarming rate. Uh, in today's paper alone, there was a story of two loaded guns. I mean, one had something like 15 bullets. A gun can hold 15. What do I know? I don't I And another was loaded. And stop and think, just for a minute, stop and think. Who, when you're standing in line to go through TSA and you're taking off your shoes and you're putting your computer in a little tray and you're doing all that stuff, how could you not know that you're carrying a loaded gun which will become readily apparent the minute whatever you're carrying it in goes through a metal detector or the x-ray machine. Huh? It, it suggests that people who have these loaded guns don't even, I mean, it's, it's, it's so regular. 
type of, whoops, am I still here? Yeah. It's so, they wouldn't even, I, I, it just blows me away. But the other thing I noted about the two most recent um, confiscations, and that's the other thing. Your gun is going to be confiscated. You're never going to see it again. It's gone, okay? Um, two of the gun-toting idiots trying to get on airplanes at uh, Pittsburgh International We're both from Wexford. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, Wexford. You know how people, some people in Wexford and other suburban areas are like afraid to come into, let's say, East Liberty. Oh, maybe not East Liberty anymore because the white folks have gentrified it. Uh, let's say, uh, Hoboy, okay? Wilkinsburg, yeah, right. They're afraid to come into those scary neighborhoods. I feel the same about Wexford. I've told you, I think the few times I've, I mean, normally I just zip right past it, but twice I have actually exited and gone somewhere. In every case, a commercial establishment, one time a medical one. And I am always so uncomfortable. <laughs> so it was in a restaurant. I was sitting with my two friends, and I'm looking around at this restaurant. This is pre-COVID. And I said, you guys notice anything really sort of weird here? And one of my friends says, yeah, everybody's blonde. I said, yeah, it ain't just white. I swear, they're all blonde. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't, and there were these like, tra I mean, traffic was awful, and traffic was awful, and it was just like, like one ugly, uh, you know, band of the regular, it, it could have been anywhere in suburban America. It bore no uh, unique, characteristics. I don't know how people can stand living in places like that, where you sit in traffic, everybody looks exactly like you. It creeps me out. Okay, just saying. So yeah, that figures. These two guys, they didn't know each other, wasn't at the same time. Maybe they do know each other. Right? Both carrying loaded guns onto airplanes in 2021. They're both from Wexford. Scary place, I'm telling you. Scary place with scary people. And if you're in Wexford right now, um, I apologize, but we all have our little prejudices. Okay. I think that's it for me. I'm sorry about the uh, interruption. And uh, I guess I'll have to get more serious about dealing with this issue. Thank you for uh, letting me vent. I feel like that's all I did today. Nobody called. Take it personally.
personally. So I'll go away now and I'll be depressed and uh, self-recriminating and wondering what it is I did wrong. And I just want you to know that I'm just guilt tripping you. Okay. And uh, I'll be back tomorrow. Stay warm. Stay safe. Stay out of airplanes. Goodbye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.